Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 321, Fin de siècle. Right then, 34 episodes after a young and dynamic woman rode through the streets of London, joshing with the crowd to become Queen of England, we have arrived at a plot spoiler. If you do not want to hear the plot spoiler, please turn away now. Okay? Right? Although we start this episode with one queen called Elizabeth on the throne of England, by the time we finish, there will be one less queen called Elizabeth by the end. Or should that be fewer? Either way, if you read between the lines of this sophisticated riddle, I figure you'll get the message. OK, you can turn back now. We've been distracted by a few things, so let me go back a step to make sure this episode both starts and ends with a death. Not saying who dies at the end, by the way. In August 1598, Elizabeth's right-hand man shuffled off this mortal coil, gone to meet his maker to perform the parrot sketch, 77 years old, and Elizabeth had lost her most devoted and competent servant. William Cecil is a hero in a particularly Renaissance mould, fiercely intelligent and a powerful intellect, deeply political and capable at all times of making hard decisions. Totally loyal to the Queen, completely committed to the charge, as he saw it, of preserving her Protestant kingdom from a sea of enemies. 
a man of wide talents and thoroughly combative, and yet a moderating influence on hawks like Leicester, who worked every hour God gave him, and yet thoroughly enriched himself along the way, and left two magnificent houses as testament to his wealth and learning, one of which survives at Burley and must be one of the most stunning stately homes in England. The contemporary antiquarian William Camden's judgment is the stuff of eulogies, but it isn't far off. Adorned with learning, a singular man for honesty, gravity, temperance, industry and justice. Hereunto are added a fluent and elegant speech, and that not affected, but plain and easy. Wisdom, strengthened by experience and seasoned with exceeding moderation and most approved fidelity. But above all, a singular piety towards God. To speak any word, the Queen was most happy in so great a counsellor, and to his wholesome counsels the state of England shall for ever be beholden. After the death of Dudders and many of Elizabeth's longest-standing privy councillors, Cecil's enemies, particularly the Earl of Essex, had chafed against his complete dominance of government business and the shell-like of the Queen. His death did nothing to release the Cecil grip, though, because by that stage... Robert Cecil had stepped into the breach, a chip off the old block, a man as clever and political as his father, but probably more unscrupulous, more of a schemer. Physically, Cecil made a stark contrast with the tall, good-looking Earl of Essex, for he had a crooked spine and was short, the Queen, with the utterly bulletproof sensitivity of the very powerful, called him her little elf. How he must have laughed! But unlike the subtle Cecil, Essex was hot-headed, impulsive, described by his supporter, Francis Bacon, as a man of nature not to be ruled. Essex was an aristo, and he expected to rule. He expected to be honoured by the Queen, and had none of the previous favourite, Robert Dudley's, maturity and basic solidity to be able to negotiate the shoals of his mistress's caprice and teasing. Robert Cecil's domination of power absolutely drove Essex up the wall of fury's fire. But Essex, although he used patronage as well as he could to build a court faction, was not rich enough, and he found it very difficult to reward his followers. Furthermore, with the exception of a well-filled hose and indeed a well-turned ankle, Essex was not clever at managing his queen. In 1597, he managed to get into an argument with her, by suggesting an appointment for Ireland, who he clearly disliked, an attempt to pass a poisoned chalice to an enemy. Now Elizabeth was no idiot, she saw through it straight away, and was furious at this idiocy. They argued, and in his fury, Essex turned his back on the Queen, which you just don't do, by the way. Take a note for your next meeting with a monarch. Well... So this got Elizabeth proper blazing. She screamed insults and she actually boxed his ears. Shades of her father beating Thomas Cromwell round the head here. Now Essex swore he would never have accepted such insults from her father, let alone from her. There's a gender thing at play here, obviously, as well as the general public humiliation. And as he was saying all of this, he, wait for it, 
put his hand on his sword. Ah, what in the Lord's name are you doing? The Earl of Nottingham, Lord Howard of the Armada to you and me, dragged him out before the Queen could recover from her shock. The fact that Essex survived gives you a good idea how enamoured of him the Queen was. But this, then, is the context to Essex and his appointment to command in Ireland. Essex didn't have the patience and character to build a position at court and repair fences. For him, he had to be the big gesture, the drama. What can I say? He's an Elizabethan nobleman. That's the way they rolled. So, that is the background then to Essex's panicked flight from Ireland. His big gesture had ended up in a cowpat and he made a deal the Queen had forbidden him to make with Tyrone. So, he threw up his command and on the 24th of September 1599 he took flight for Nonsuch Palace to use his personal charm in a last-ditch effort to win round his Queen. A pretty desperate venture, given that he not mentioned the fact that he was deserting his post to the Queen. Speed was of the essence. He had to get there first. As he returned, Lord Grey managed to get in the way and tried to stop him, but Essex ploughed on regardless, while Grey legged it to Robert Cecil. Cecil made haste to the Queen's side, but Essex had beaten him to it, and pushed his way into the Queen's chambers, where the Queen was in a state of undress. I mean, this is nuclear stuff in early modern Europe. Plenty of people had made a connection between Essex's fall and the Queen's obsession in her later years with her physical appearance, spending hours every day on makeup and wearing more and more dramatic dresses. There's a suggestion that her response was heightened by this exposure in a state not designed for a public audience, a feeling of humiliation at being seen in a vulnerable state. Though in point of fact, Elizabeth managed the situation in a masterly way, staying cool as this nutter barged into her private apartments against every possible convention. She talked him down, and he left. Later, she allowed him to return, they talked things through, and then she dismissed him. He did not know it, but she had just dismissed him from her presence for ever. The next day, Essex was grilled by the Privy Council, and although the Queen allowed his hearing to be in a private, specially commissioned court, Essex's career was firmly on the rocks. He was banished from court, lost most of his lucrative monopolies, and had no way, therefore, to service his £16,000 debt, and his protégés slowly began drifting away. By 1600, the knives were out and rumours abounded that Essex had cut a dishonourable deal with Tyrone in Ireland and had planned rebellion. A secret correspondence between Essex and the likely successor, James VI of Scotland, was presented as treasonable. In fact, Essex was just a fool, not a knave, and the likes of Walter Raleigh were working against him in a poisonous atmosphere at court. Denied money, access to the source of patronage at court, filled with a towering sense of his own worth, Essex was desperate. By this stage, Francis Bacon had taken one look at the situation and scuttled off down the nearest available hawser onto shore as it felt the ship of Essex beginning to settle and reside gently on the sea of politics. His brother Anthony Bacon, though, was made of sterner stuff and stayed on the bridge. 
Also on the bridge were other Essex fans, the Earl of Southampton, for example, his wife Frances and his sister Penelope. Essex was ill by December, though. The doctors reporting that he found his liver stopped and perished. His entrails and guts were exculcerated. I have no idea what an exculcerated gut is, but it doesn't sound as though you want one, to be honest. The Queen softened a little, allowing him to return to Essex House on the Strand and postponed his trial from the 7th of February. But Essex was in a right old lather. The trial eventually went ahead and Essex was grilled by Edward Cook before being sent home. The Queen blew hot and the Queen blew cold. She kept him banned from court but lifted the house arrest. Well, that was like a clarion call for malcontents, although I should call it a dog whistle maybe, just to stay up to date. Men like the Earls of Rutland, Southampton, Bedford and Sussex, and Lord Sands, Cromwell and Monteagle, Robert Catesby and Francis Tresham, the last two later being gunpowder plotters, all came to his side. Generally, they were young, in debt, and excluded from the top table by the old guard. Essex was essentially running a rival court from August 1601. By February they were at a fever pitch and ready to march on court and demand access to the Queen and clear away her evil councillors. It so happened that on the 8th of February, four privy councillors came to call at the Strand to get him to come to court for judgment. And by eck did they get a shock. There were 300 men arming themselves. They were quickly locked away before things got ugly. Down to the city marched the 300, rather oddly, rather than heading for Whitehall. Probably because Essex hoped the sheriff would bring him his 1,000 militiamen. As they marched, the streets that led towards Whitehall were chained off, which seemed to rob Essex of his ultimate plan. Not sure what he expected, rose petals strewn in his path maybe. But meanwhile, he received a not on your nelly from the militiamen, and so raising oddness and incompetence to truly Herculean levels. Essex took a pause in his little rebellion to sit down for a spot of lunch with the sheriff, while his 300 men milled about and twiddled their thumbs during which twiddling, many of them realised they'd marched out with a person matching the description attached to me the other day by one of my family members, namely an absolute twit, and they began to melt, as you do, melt away. Absurdity moved gently along the scale to farce. After a nice spot of eats, Essex tried to march again and found the way blocked by the Queen's men, and so he did a Lindisfarne and ran for home. Nope also blocked now. So, they're headed for the river and boats. Essex fell into the Thames, as it happens, which I think was a nice touch, was pulled out, floated back to Essex House, to be arrested with his remaining pals by the Lord Admiral, a more laughable, incompetent rebellion you could not wish to see. Seriously. There's more, though, and if you would like a thoroughly readable account of Essex's life, I suggest Elizabeth's last favourite, by Sarah Beth Watkins. But the long and short was a trial on the 17th of February where Essex pleaded not guilty and was grilled by the dream legal team Edward Cook and Francis Bacon, a pair, generally speaking, who found it difficult to be in the same room without scratching each other's eyes out. 
there could be only one result of the trial. Locked up, Essex descended into sneak territory. His sister Penelope had been tireless in writing to the Queen on his behalf, but when asked to dish the dirt on other conspirators, all the Earl of Essex would say was this. I must accuse one who is most nearest to me, my sister, who did continually urge me on with telling me how all my friends and followers thought me a coward and that I had lost my valour. She must be looked to, for she hath a proud spirit. Well, you rat. Penelope fought her corner with wit and wisdom, so Lord knows what percentage of her genes she shared with her brother, and eventually she was cleared of any suspicion. She duly wrote to the Queen, It is known that I have been more like a slave than a sister, which proceedeth out of my exceeding love rather than his authority. So strangely have I been wronged, as may well be an argument to make one despise the world, finding the smoke of envy where affection should be clear. The Earl of Essex was executed on the 25th of February 1601. Extraordinarily, he was popular with the crowds, who there took a gin rally, who was seen watching the execution from a window, laughing, joking and smoking. The Queen apparently showed no emotion when the news was brought to her and just kept thumping away on her virginal. The war with Spain, meanwhile, wandered on, though its complexion had now changed. The war in the Low Countries was much more static than it had been. Despite his determination to start his reign with a major victory, Philip III's campaigns in 1598 and 1599 were marked by the problems of planning and supply that plagued the Spanish war effort. A fresh armada bound for Ireland got no further than the Azores. A new offensive in the United Provinces foundered due to lack of money and the constant mutiny in the Spanish army, which then saw a number of towns just sold back to the Dutch by their garrisons. And now that France was no longer involved in the war, Elizabeth was determined, even more than ever, to minimise costs. In 1598, she renegotiated the relationship with the United Provinces. So, after much squabbling about the amount of money that the English had or had not loaned to them, the Dutch finally agreed the amount that they would recognise and repay. And then, the English army was transferred into Dutch control and from then on formed a unit within the Dutch army which was paid for by the United Provinces. That unit fought in the victories at Turnut and Neuport, and the Dutch were allowed to recruit more troops in England. Many English died in the ultimately unsuccessful defence of Oostend from 1601-4. to 4. Now, about all that, a few general observations. So if you listen very carefully, I suspect you would be able to hear the cracking of Elizabeth's arm as it was twisted by her privy council and court to support the Dutch, with repeated exclamations of, Oh, go on then! But despite this sometimes grudging and qualified support from the English, and sometimes incompetent and downright treacherous military interventions, English support for the Dutch revolt had played a central role in its success. Second observation, by the time of Elizabeth's death and the fall of Oostend, it had become clear that Flanders and the United Provinces 
would not be reunited in any kind of new independent state. The possibility still remained, though, at least in the minds of Philip and his new, thoroughly competent military commander there, Spinola, of the return of the United Provinces to the obedience of the Spanish crown, and the war would therefore continue until that wish had finally disappeared. The war at sea also continued with the Spanish, but there were few more opportunities for large-scale descents on the Spanish coast, and again, Elizabeth's parsimony grew ever fiercer. There was, however, one remaining royal expedition to the Caribbean in 1598, and militarily it was very successful, led by Sir George Clifford. He captured San Juan and devastated the colony of Puerto Rico. Elizabeth was delighted. Clifford was less delighted. Given the meanness of Elizabeth's support, the expedition cost him an arm and indeed a leg. So much so that he lamented that he'd thrown his lands into the sea and he would not be lured away for another expedition again. In 1602, Leveson hanged around off the Spanish coast and managed to cut out a ship from the floater of that year. By 1601, the annual expenditure on the Navy was down to 54,000 quid, which was really not very much by comparison. Now, on the one hand, the Navy board and dockyards of Portsmouth, Woolwich and Chatham, which have made such a difference in the war, continued to be feared abroad. In 1599, there was a panic about a new Spanish fleet heading England's way, and 18 warships were fitted out and put to sea in just 12 days, an achievement for which one commentator remarked, the Queen was never more dreaded for anything that she did. But actually, behind the scenes, contractors could make no money without cutting corners, corruption was rife, pay for seamen was awful and frequently late. Medical support and arrangements for pensioned seamen were far from generous. This last was despite at least some attempt to make proper provision in the 1593 Act for the Necessary Relief of Soldiers and Mariners, in which each parish was charged with a weekly sum towards the relief of the sick, hurt and maimed soldiers and mariners. Despite this, by the end of the reign, it was commonplace for potential recruits to swear that they'd rather be hanged than perform service in the Queen's Navy. However, the privately funded war, on the other hand, continued. One great impact of the wars was the enormous expansion of England's merchant fleets. Sharp-eyed professional investors ran the war for profit. Many of the ship's captains were, in fact, Investors, not mariners. Privateering in the Atlantic and around the British Isles ran riot, although some continued to the Caribbean too. And money was therefore made in vast quantities, especially enriching the city of London. The merchant fleets grew from 20 ships of over 200 tonnes to close to 100 ships of over 200 tonnes by 1600. It's been estimated that prize goods equaled around 10 to 15% of legal international trade. So two things worth noting here then generally. The damage to Spanish trade from privateering was absolutely massive. 20 years of privateering 
combined with constant demands for taxation from the Spanish crown, bled white the merchant fleets of Spain and destroyed the Basque and Cantabrian ports. 300 years later, these ports had still not recovered their strength of the 1570s. In the Caribbean, but also to an extent even in the Mediterranean, much of the trade fell from Spanish into Dutch, English and French carriers. The other point to make is that London and London merchants were so greatly enriched by the war with Spain that the foundations were laid for colonial exploration and the establishment of colonies in the 17th century. Some examples. The London merchant John Watts owned up to having made £32,000 in 1591 alone. Christopher Newport sacked four towns and took 19 prizes in 1592. In 1602, William Parker took the newly refortified Portobello. For the first time then, England had a merchant fleet capable of long-distance trade and London had the skills, capital and ambition to back that trade. The vision of England's critical international trade and the focus of the merchant fleet had always been on Flanders and the wool and the cloth trade. At the start of the period also, I had talked about how at last Elizabethan England had identified the strategic importance of a fleet for defence, a royal fleet for defence. But now, without wanting to be pretentious and all that, I might suggest a sort of drum roll in the background or given the global impacts of colonisation, some more ominous music might be in order. Because it seems to me that here is the real significance of the Anglo-Spanish War. From defence and cross-channel trade and a bit of local privateering, for the English, the sea had become much, much more than defence against the hostile world. Now it had become a genuine national endeavour for nobility, gentry and mercantile classes, and in Walter Raleigh's words, the means to seek new worlds for gold, for praise, for glory. Roll credits and cut. Well done, everyone. Great job. Everyone down to the post-match party. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. While we're on the sort of impact of the Elizabethan age thingy, this seems like a good time to talk about English nationalism, because that's always been something of a thing for which Elizabethan England has been credited. There are a lot of quotes I could throw at you, and here are a couple. The first one from Professor Hale in 1904. In no other century of English history was the national feeling more deeply roused and exalted than in the latter part of the 16th century. The valour of England was then just over-brimming. It could not conceive itself defeated or shamed. 
it could only imagine itself coming and seeing and conquering. It felt its strength in every limb. It could not dream of failure and ruin. I feel the need to warn here against chronological snobbery. I can feel my embarrassment rising at such language. But hey, this is 1904, and who's to say such views, attitudes and outlooks were in any way inferior to those of the 21st century? And relatively recently, it remains a trope that nationalism and unity was a core part of the Elizabethan world. In 1992, Greenfield wrote, It is a commonplace in contemporary literary history to note the remarkable, indeed striking in its omnipresence and intensity, nationalism in English literature. Whig historians assumed a triangular structure to Elizabethan nationalism of crown, Anglican church and the nation and assumed in particular that it was embedded in the person of the queen or the monarch. The historian Norman Davis recognised this myth of Tudor Englishness which had been elaborated by the Protestants of the 17th and 18th centuries and he wrote of the deification of the English monarchy as a focus for the foundation of English Protestantism and of modern English patriotism. And so I would just like to point out that while it surely can't be argued that there was not much patriotic content in literature at this time, the story is rather more nuanced. Obviously, this statement should come after I have read out John of Gaunt's speech. This happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea, and so on, while dancing around my shed listening to Jerusalem, waving my flag of St George, and let me say I would be more than happy and unapologetic to do so, maybe quoting Gareth Southgate as I go. There is no doubt that there, there is a mass of other strongly patriotic literature. I might point to the expansionist work of John Dee and Richard Hackloyd that we have talked about in previous episodes. But there is nuance in this story, in the same way as there is nuance in Gaunt's speech, which was, of course, all about declinism. That England, that was wont to conquer others, hath made a shameful conquest of itself. Gaunt's speech was less about England's greatness now and more about her fall from former glory. The first point to make is that the concatenation of monarch and national feeling is highly questionable from the point of view of both monarch and subject. So Elizabeth was indeed more than happy to make appeals to patriotism when required, but she was also very aware that nationalism could cut two ways, that there were many in her kingdom who did not, in fact, believe that the country and the monarch were the same thing, and that loyalty to country could be used against the monarch instead of for her. And it was so used. For example, when Parliament tried to persuade her that she really ought to top Mary Stuart, they declaimed, she is cousin to you only in remote degree, but we be sons of the children of this land, whereof you be not only the natural mother, but the wedded spouse. Parliament is suggesting here 
that Elizabeth's dynastic concerns should be outweighed by the needs of the country. There is also a strong tradition of allegiance to Protestantism rather than to the monarch, as there was in Scotland too. So, that allegiance to God outweighed that owed to the monarch. John Ponnet argued that Queen Mary's religion meant that she could and should be overthrown. As the Reformation gathered strength, the same conviction grew in English Catholic circles, most notably in the case of William Allen, working with the Pope to have Elizabeth removed as a heretic. And for folks like John Fox, whose acts and monuments is seen as a work forging a link between England and Protestantism, it was clear that God's judgment could be deployed in overthrowing tyrants, in confounding pride, in altering states and kingdoms, in conserving religion against errors and dissensions, in relieving the godly, in bridling the wicked, in loosing and tying up again of Satan, the disturber of commonwealths. Again, for Fox, allegiance to God outweighed allegiance to monarch. Elizabeth, therefore, tried very consciously to reforge the link between monarchy and patriotism, but she sought to do it on her own terms. An example might be the attempt by Protestant leaders to force her to become a champion of Protestantism. An example of her response is the Ditchley portrait made after the Armada. In the picture, her hand is firmly placed just on England whereas in a Dutch image of the same time, much more focused on global Protestantism, it is the world that is emphasised by place the placing of her hand. At various points, Elizabeth emphasises the loyalty due to her as a queen rather than loyalty due to country. Official pronouncements like those of Walter Mildmay tried to make that connection indivisible. England, our native country one of the most renowned monarchies in the world. England equals monarch sort of thing. While we're on Protestantism and church as a core part of the English identity, it's also worth noting that actually the Protestant religion had a wide vein of internationalism rather than a parochial English focus, just as of course did Catholicism. The English did not see Protestantism as something distinctive to the English they were part of a European movement. I remember reading one of those annoying throwaway lines from the author William Dalrymple using Reformation as a sort of sneering parallel with Brexit, England cutting themselves off from the continent sort of thing, unaccountably. Nothing could be further from the truth. Protestantism was a European endeavour. They recognised a community of spirit with all of Christendom. Shakespeare's Henry V, in his love scene with Catherine of Valois, talks about going on crusade, another endeavour of Christendom. Crusade is, of course, also, I have to say, an essential part of any profession of love, had only Mr Darcy realised it. There are many other ways in which Elizabethan patriotism varied from the traditional model of nationalism. Generally, one national language is seen as a core element of national feeling. But despite modern claims and complaints, 
Actually, there's no sign in the Tudor state that other languages in the archipelago were repressed. It is often said that the Union of England and Wales did indeed aim to do this. But the aim of the requirement for law courts to conduct all their business in English and for office holders in Wales to speak English were not attempts to repress the language of Welsh, but actually just to improve administrative efficiency and reduce the possibility of errors and confusion. Similar moves took place in France and Scotland, for example. In France in 1539, the ordinance of Vier Cotteret demanded the use of the langue in all legal acts and contracts. And in Scotland, clan chiefs were told by their king to educate their eldest child to speak English. Actually, the Scottish Parliament went further than the Tudors, declaring its stated desire to eradicate the Gallic language. The Tudors, in fact, made provision for the majority who spoke only Welsh. Translators were provided in court. Royal proclamations were required to be made in Welsh. They also encouraged the development of Protestant religious material written in Welsh, including Bishop William Morgan's Welsh Bible, through a statute in 1563. Nor was Welsh culture marginalised. In particular, Welsh culture was embedded in the reputation of the outrageously popular history of the Kings of Britain by Geoffrey Monmouth. The Elizabethan poet Michael Drayton wrote, And Wales as well as haughty England boasts Of Camelot and all her pentecosts, To have precedence in Pendragon's race At Arthur's table challenging the place. And he then went on to talk about Welsh victories and to compliment the language. It's similar for Cornish. Although there's no development of a Cornish Bible, there is a recognition of the problem in a specific concession that where language was a problem with the church service, Latin could be used as had been traditional. In addition, there's a little sign of the xenophobia supposedly inheriting the promotion of the English language. Indeed, the English took pride in the diversity of their language's origins. Richard Carew explained, Sing then we borrow, and that not shamefully, from the Dutch, the Breton, the Dane, the French, the Italian and the Spaniard. How can our stock be other than plentiful? The diversity of opinion and basis for loyalty and patriotism was not always only for England either. Other loyalties and identities remained powerful. There's no doubt that by Elizabethan times, there was a clear and sharp identification of England as a community to which people belonged and owed allegiance. But regionalism remained strong. For one example of this, in the literature accompanying the defeat of the Armada, it's clear that the authors were expressing their pride with London's specific role in delivering victory. So look, Far be it from me to suggest that Elizabethan England was not a place where a sense of English nationhood burned bright and where leaders did not use that patriotism to build unity and support. But it is not the monolithic nationalism born throughout Europe from the 19th century and which has grown so strong since for good or ill. Elizabethan attitudes were much more universalist, varied and diverse than sometimes has been given credit for. The end of Elizabeth's reign 
has a real fan de siècle feel about it, and that's largely, I think, to do with the increasing expectation that the Queen surely couldn't last much longer. The clogs must be for the popping, especially given the death of so many of her companions and the names who had dominated court life for so long. But it's also about the increasing parsimony of the state and the struggle to make ends meet, as well as the disasters of the 1590s, as we heard a few weeks ago. The impact of Elizabeth's efforts to save money have been obvious in her foreign arrangements and the way the war at sea was carried out. It also impacted life at court. Elizabeth's expenditure per year on court was £72,000 a year, whereas for James I they would quickly rise to 100000 The cost of the war in Ireland in the Low Countries had sucked up expenditure. To set against this, Elizabeth had a sort of unspoken arrangement with her nobility and gentry on whom her governance relied. Although her nobility had very few fiscal privileges unlike their continental counterparts often, Elizabeth refused to update taxation assessments, saving thereby her subjects from ever higher tax burdens. The downside of that was that she allowed a sclerotic tax-raising system to go unreformed and presented her successors with a serious problem of how to raise appropriate levels of revenue. She also steadfastly refused wheezes that were again common on the continent, such as the sale of offices. But what she did not refuse was the way for her nobles to enrich themselves through commerce, which would also help breed a flexibility of attitude towards commerce in the minds of the gentry that were not always present in, say, France, for example, and has been cited as one of the reasons for England and the Dutch Republic's later growing prosperity. But that's for another day. There were a couple of ways of making commerce pay for her nobles. You might give licences to someone to sell a certain amount of commodities for a knockdown price. So, a number of dicker of leather, for example. I have just this minute learned that a dicker is a unit of measurement for leather amounting to ten hides and comes from the Latin decuria for a pack of ten. Good golly. A more attractive way was the grant of a complete monopoly. Now that was the way to a sure-fire fortune, because you could slap whatever price you liked, as well as having the trade in your pocket. No one could go anywhere else to get the commodity. It was, in effect, a tax on consumers. There were quite a few monopolies, and I have to say that some of them are really quite specific. There was, for example, a monopoly to sell the livers of fishes. There was also one to print David's psalms according to the Hebrew text. Many were rather more obvious, too, to make saltpetre or glasses or print almanacs. Now, the recipients of monopolies loved it. Everyone else hated it. And the Privy Council knew they did. Robert Cecil described monopolies as, for the most part, contentious and grievous to the subject, chiefly such as the poorer sort. The scum of discontent rose to the top of the pot in the Parliament of 1601. Elizabeth sort of headed things off, basically, as she was very good at doing, expressing horror that the monopolies have got out of hand like this, promising that the Privy Council would now monitor them and close down any that were inappropriate. Elizabeth 
demonstrated that she also knew how to play the crowd even now, with what became known as her golden speech in that parliament, which included a love note. I do assure you, there is no prince which loveth his subjects better, or whose love can countervail our love. And though God hath raised me high, yet this I count the glory of my crown, that I have reigned with your love. Not a dry eye in the house. By this time, though, Elizabeth was feeling her age. Essex's rebellion had hit her hard in a way. More and more, she kept to her private apartments. John Harrington wrote that she found it difficult to cope any more with matters of state. Every new message from the city doth disturb her. The many evil plots and designs have overcome all Her Highness's sweet temper. Reading the writing on the wall, her court became less of an attraction, and her courtiers concentrated instead on the new boy in the north. The court was very much neglected, and in effect the people were generally weary of an old woman's government, wrote one. One day she made the classic mistake of looking in a mirror, something she'd resisted for 20 years and the experience was not a happy one, leaving her yelling against all her courtiers who had flattered her for so long. When John Harrington then visited her, he found a lady shut up in a chamber from her subjects and most of her servants, and seldom seen but on holy days. Elizabeth retreated to Richmond and there sunk into her last illness. She refused to lie in her bed and instead lay on the floor on a pile of cushions, holding her finger almost continually in her mouth with her eyes open and fixed upon the ground, where she sat on cushions without raising or resting herself, and was greatly emaciated by her long watching and fasting. By March 1603, Elizabeth had been persuaded to retire to bed instead of to cushion, but that seemed to be an end of it. Elizabeth's glands were swollen, she was unable to speak. Of course, everyone was desperate to know who was her heir, and there are a few tales about this, including one where Lord Howard asked if James should be her heir, and she wordlessly drew her finger round her head to indicate a crown. On the 23rd of March, the Tudor dynasty at last came to an end. Well, by golly, we've come to the end of Elizabeth's story. I feel quite emotional, as always, really. It seems we've walked at Elizabeth's side for a very long time and what a walk it has been, from the self-confidence and precociousness of her childhood to the danger of her young adulthood to a reign of 45 years packed with momentous events, themes and changes that would be influential so long after her death, such as, I don't know, the growth of nationhood, the start of global exploration the partnership forged between state and people through the poor laws and justice system. She maybe shares many similarities with the reign of her father in the grandeur and magnificence of her court and her talent for playing to the galleries and in the quality of her servants. So Henry had Wolsey and Cromwell, Elizabeth had Burley, Dudley, Walsingham. But such a different way of managing them, not for Elizabeth, the toxic infighting for power at Privy Council, however much of a hothouse court must have been. Public servants who served for year after year without fear of being suddenly and arbitrarily dragged off to the Tower. 
It's a bizarre management technique she had, though. The volatility, the coquetry, sudden furies, the torturous decision-making which drove her advisers up the wall, but which kept her hand firmly on the tiller of state as the decision-maker. And in a man's world, of all English rulers, this woman was one of the most successful. And then, of course, there's the fact of the succession, the extraordinary significant handoff to the Stuarts, a new dynasty who would bring turbulence to compete with Henry VIII. That is it then for this episode. We shall move on to Jimmy 6 and 1 at some point, but at the time of writing, I have not written my next episode, Who? so who knows? Next week, we have a guest episode from Mike Caradi of the History of Italy, a story of British history called The Bagpipes of Freedom. Definitely something to look forward to. Thereafter, who knows? Europe, the Great Rebuilding, or Jimmy One? I will let the suspense build. Until then, thank you so much for all your reviews and comments. Thank you so much for listening. Good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 